The setting of the sun tonight marks the official beginning of Rosh Hashanah, or as the Jews call it, Yom Teruah, or the ancient Jewish Feast of Trumpets. Now, just like anything else that happens on a regular or on a yearly basis, this day has a tendency to become just another day on the calendar that's marked. We have these things happen. We go from year to year. I remember when I worked in the city, I loved Rosh Hashanah because alternate side of the street parking was suspended for two days, and I didn't have to worry about where I was going to park, you know, and it was like, all right, Rosh Hashanah, you know. And it's something that comes each year and has throughout most of our lifetimes, and it's something that we hear about, and ultimately, usually, we just dismiss it because that's Jewish, and it really doesn't have all that much to do with us. However, for us, for the Christian, especially in our day, and especially this day, Rosh Hashanah, it should be one of the most exciting days of the year. I want to share with you tonight why that is. But before we do, I've asked you to turn to John chapter 5, and I want you to see what Jesus said in verse 39 as he was discussing with some of the Jewish leaders of his day the things concerning himself. They were debating whether or not he was true or whether or not he was false, that if Jesus was the true Messiah or not. And his word to them in this verse was this. He said, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. In other words, Jesus is saying, you guys study the Bible day in and day out from back to front, at least the Old Testament. But if you had life in you, then you would recognize who I am, because the scriptures ultimately, all of them testify of me. And that's true. Every scripture testifies of Christ. In Luke chapter 24, if you'll leave John chapter 5 and turn to Luke 24, the setting is after Jesus died and then rose again from the dead. And his disciples were confused. They thought that he would be the Messiah that would liberate Israel from the yoke of Roman oppression. And Jesus, having now died and passed off the scene, they were confused. And some of them decided that they were going to carry on with former business, things that they did before they knew the Lord. And so two of them decided to walk to the city of Emmaus, an eight-mile walk. And as they were walking, a man joined himself to them. It was Jesus. But they didn't know that it was Jesus. He hid his identity from them. And as he walked with them, he said, Why is it that as you walk along here, you guys are sad, that there's a, a, a discontentedness in your spirit? And they said, Well, didn't you hear about Jesus, the things that happened in Jerusalem in these days? And he said, What things? And they looked at him sideways and said, were you born in a corner? I mean, what do you mean? The things concerning Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Luke 24, verse 25, it says, Then he said unto them, he said, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses means Genesis because Moses wrote Genesis. So beginning in Genesis and moving all the way through the Old Testament on an eight-mile walk, which would take several hours, he expounded to them how the Old Testament spoke of him in every way, every law, every custom, Every principle, every verse. When Abraham offered his son Isaac, it was pointing to the father offering his son. Everything, the cleansing of the leper, every ritual that was ever done pointed to Jesus and he expounded it to them how it pointed to and spoke of him. The very thing that he had said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures, but you're missing the point. They testify of me, they all speak of me. And thus we come to the feasts of the Lord. Leave Luke 24 and turn to Leviticus chapter 23 now. The book of Leviticus was a guide for the priests. It wasn't something that you would just read for morning devotions on a regular basis. It was a very deep part of the law and it was a manual for the priests in their ministry and in their sacrificial system and their service for the people and for the Lord. But in chapter 23, God, through Moses, gave two 
Israel and his people a list of feasts or festivals that they were to observe each year, seven of them in number that were to be instituted and then kept, and the people were to stop their lives for these seven times or seasons during the year, and they were to commemorate or keep these feasts. Three of them were in the spring season. They were Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Then there would be one in the summer, the Feast of Pentecost. Don't worry, we'll go back and look at these a little closer in a moment. And then there would be three in the fall, the Feast of Trumpets, or Yom Teruah, or what we now call Rosh Hashanah, what we are in tonight. Second of all, the Day of Atonement, or the Day of Forgiveness, or Cleansing. And then finally, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. So seven feasts, three in the spring, one in the summer, three in the fall. But what are they and why? Why did God institute these feasts? Why did he want the people to keep them? And what was their purpose? And how do they show us Christ? And so look with me at Leviticus chapter 23 and in verse 1. We're going to bounce through this chapter like lily pads. We won't go through verse by verse, but we'll look at each of these feasts. It says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them uh, concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Now, pause with me for just a moment and consider uh, a couple of things. First of all, notice that they are called the feasts of the Lord. They are not called the feasts of Israel, and that's important. Because if they were the feasts of Israel, then they would be exclusively and only for Israel. But they are not. They are for all of God's people. These are the Lord's feasts. These are feasts that he keeps each year, and thus he passed them on to us to observe as well. Second of all, notice the word feast that he uses there in verse 2. The feasts of the Lord. The word in the Hebrew is the word moed. And what it literally means is an appointed time or an appointment, if you would, or rather you could say a divine appointment. That's what the word means. That God says that these, uh, this is concerning my appointments, and then he says that you will proclaim to be holy convocations. That's the next word. Convocation, it's the Hebrew word mikra, M-I-Q-R-A, and what it literally means, and you'll want to mark this and remember it, is a rehearsal or a dress rehearsal. So what God is basically saying to Moses, thus to his people, he's saying, I want you to keep these appointments, or I have divine appointments, and I want you to rehearse them year by year. And so this is what God is speaking of in these things. The feasts were ordained to show a series of appointments that God was going to keep, and the yearly observance of them was a dress rehearsal for the actual event when it would occur. But we also understand that the feasts speak of Christ because everything in the Bible ultimately points us to Christ. Thus, they are prophetic because Christ hadn't come yet in Leviticus chapter 23. So if the appointments that were to be rehearsed every year were ordained in Leviticus and Christ didn't come for several hundred years, then these feasts are looking forward to something concerning Christ. So what? These feasts speak to us concerning the first and the second coming of Christ. Appointments that would um, be concerning things, things in the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the first four of the feasts, the spring feasts of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, and the summer feast of Pentecost, all four of those were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. But the fall feasts, the last three, trumpets, or Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and the Day of Atonement, or the Feast of Tabernacles, those three feasts have yet to be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. Now let's look at these feasts and see uh, what they are and and how they um, look forward to this. Now let me pause for just a second and say this. If you're brand new to the Bible... Don't try to pick up all the details in this little stuff. You'll get the point. So don't say, I don't know what he's talking about, lambs and blood and, you know, this is crazy. Are you nuts? Listen, take it in, 
file it in the file that says wait for more information and then just keep listening because we'll, we'll wrap it up to a point where you say, oh, I, I get it. I hear what God is saying to me tonight. So uh, hang in there. First of all, the first feast in the spring, the feast of Passover. Look with me at verse 5. It says, in the 14th day of the first month at evening is the Lord's Passover. So the first feast that he mentions is the Passover feast. Now that feast was looking back at what God did when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. You remember the story. God said to Moses, this month will be the beginning of months. And in the 14th day of this month, every man, every family, every household will take a lamb. And it will be a perfect lamb. And that lamb will dwell in the house with the people for four days. And on the Passover night, that lamb will be slain, killed, sacrificed. And the blood from that lamb will be sprinkled upon the doorposts and on the lintel of the house. And when the death angel passes through Egypt, he will slay the firstborn of every house unless he sees the blood applied to the door of the house. And if he sees the blood, he will pass over and nothing will happen to that household. But if the blood is not applied, then the firstborn of every household will die. It was one of the judgments that God brought upon Egypt. It was the Passover. God saying, I will pass over your sin when I see the blood. It was looking back at that, but it was also looking forward to what the Passover ultimately was speaking of, and that was Jesus. And that's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Because Jesus would be the sacrificial lamb whose blood would be spilled to take away the sins of the whole world. Well, just like the lamb was inspected for four days, Jesus was also inspected for four days. They asked him questions. They said, should we pay taxes or not? And Jesus gave an answer, and they were stumbled. They, they, they couldn't find fault with him. Hey, Christ, will he be David's son or David's Lord? And again, Jesus stumped them. Over and over again, they asked him questions, trying to trap him in his words, and they ultimately came to a point where even Pilate said, I find no fault in him. He was a lamb without blemish. No one could lay any charge to him to accuse him of any sin at all whatsoever. He was a perfect, spotless lamb. He was then crucified on the very day of Passover, thus showing that the appointment of God in instituting the Passover was kept by Christ because that was the initial ordained purpose of God in instituting that feast or that appointment that was rehearsed year by year. So on the Passover, Jesus, who was the Passover lamb, was offered to pay the price of the sins of the world. Thus Paul says in 1 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And thus, uh, you know, Jesus fulfilled um, what the Passover was, was representing uh, in that. The second feast that Moses was given to give to the children of Israel was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's listed in verse 6 of chapter 23 back in Leviticus. It says, on the 15th day of the same month. So this would be the next day. Passover was the 14th day. Unleavened bread then um, will be the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. And for seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Now, these days, these first two, Passover and unleavened bread, it doesn't matter what day of the week it is. If it's the 14th, it, it's a, it could be a Monday, it could be a Friday. It doesn't matter what it is. That's when they keep it. And thus, the unleavened bread is going to follow suit. It's the next day, no matter what day it, it falls on. And what they're to do that day, and then for seven days, is that they're to eat unleavened bread. Now, in the Bible, leaven or yeast, that's what leaven is, always speaks of or is a picture of sin. Because what you do when you put yeast into a lump of dough is that you begin the rotting process. That's when the yeast or the dough rises. That's what's taking place. It's beginning to break down and rot. And that's what sin does in the life of a person or a human or a planet or a county or a church or anything else. That when sin comes in, it begins to break down. And so for something to be unleavened, it's to be sinless. And that's why Jesus said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so the leaven is supposed to be um, completely purged out. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. And I think it's on um, the sheet that you 
um, have right there. It says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you are, unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what does it speak of concerning Christ and his appointment with the world, this feast of unleavened bread? It speaks to the fact that he was absolutely sinless, that there was no leaven found in him at all. And it's important that unleavened bread fall after the Passover. And the reason for that is this, is that Jesus had to be sinless all the way through until he died. He could not sin even up to that last moment. He had to go from birth to death in perfection in order for him to qualify to be able to pay the price for the sins of the world. It was essential. And so thus, he had to be sinless all the way through. That's why unleavened bread falls after Passover because Passover was when he died. And unleavened bread then, he was sinless right through all the way to the end. And so it speaks to the sinlessness of Christ even in his death. Now, the third feast is the Feast of first fruits. And it's listed for us in chapter 23, verse 11. It says that, um, it actually starts in verse 9. It says, The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you be come into the land which I give you, and you shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you, on the morning after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Okay, so the Feast of First Fruits would take place. Now follow me here. Don't get lost. Ready? The morning after the Sabbath that fell directly after Passover and unleavened bread. Do you follow that? In other words, if let's say, for instance, that Passover was on a Tuesday, unleavened bread would be on a Wednesday. The following Sabbath would be that Saturday, and it would be the morning after. So that next Sunday morning would be when first fruits would take place. It was the morning after the Sabbath that followed Passover and unleavened bread. You get it? And what they would do is they would bring, <clears throat> excuse me, the first fruits of their spring harvest, which was the early harvest in Israel, and they would bring it to the priest, and he would wave it before the Lord. And it was just an offering of the first fruits unto the Lord. Now, that feast didn't look back at anything. See, Passover looked back to Egypt. Unleavened bread looked back to the manna that fell down, the unleavened bread that rained down from heaven. It was commemorative, but it was also prophetic. First fruits, there was nothing to look back upon. There was no first fruits. They were a people without a land. There was no harvest. It was when they would come into the land that they would do it. So that means that this feast is only looking forward. Well, what was the point? It never would have made sense to them why they had to keep this rehearsal or this commemoration, this appointment. Why would they have to do that? It doesn't make sense until after Jesus rises from the dead. And the Apostle Paul gives us the answer of what that feast means. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he says this. He says, but now is Christ, Christ is risen from the dead and he's become the first fruits of them that slept or were dead. In other words, Jesus was the first one to rise from the dead. And thus now, because of him, by faith in him, all of us that are in Christ and saved, we also will rise from the dead. But he was the first fruits. He was the first one that did. And thus, the feast of first fruits was speaking forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, all three of these first appointments or feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, were fulfilled by Jesus on the exact day that they had been rehearsed each year. It was the 14th of the month when they would rehearse the Passover. It was the 14th of the first month when Jesus went to the cross. 
It was the next day they would keep unleavened bread. Jesus fulfilled that in that he was sinless through the day after he was uh, um, crucified. The feast of uh, first fruits would be the morning after the Sabbath, after the feast of unleavened bread that had been that previous week. Same thing with Jesus. When did he rise from the dead? Sunday morning, the first day of the week. It was the morning after the Sabbath, after the unleavened bread. And it just so happened that it fell on a year where that was the third day because it was prophesied that it would be on the third day. See, if Passover had been on a Monday, it it still wouldn't have been first fruits until Sunday morning, but it would have been more than three days. And thus God had to have even that worked out and that the year that Jesus died, Passover had to fall on that Friday. Amazing. God knew exactly what he was doing because it would be fulfilled on that day. The fourth feast uh, in this progression is the Feast of Pentecost, and it's in verse 15. It says, And you shall count unto you from the morning after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, or uh, first fruits, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. So you're going to count seven weeks from the Feast of first fruits. Even unto the morning after the seventh Sabbath, you shall number 50 days. So that's what Pentecost means. It means 50 or 50 days. And you shall offer then a new meat offering unto the Lord, and you shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of the two tenth deals. And then he gives uh, the details, uh, which you can read on your own, concerning the Feast of Pentecost. But what did the Feast of Pentecost uh, commemorate or, or, or speak to? It was for them... It was a celebration of their harvest. It was a time when they would bring in their harvest before the Lord and they would rejoice and give thanks to God that he had blessed them with the bounty uh, that he had. But it was also looking forward to an appointment that God had with the world for a time of spiritual harvest. When was this appointment kept? Well, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, the first fruits. We come to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It's a verse that's on your yellow reference sheet. But the chapter begins, Acts chapter 2, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come. That's important. Because what it's saying to us is that everything that they had been rehearsing for, for the hundreds of years that they had been keeping this feast prior, now was coming to a point where it was being fulfilled in its main purpose and what it was ordained to be on that day. And it says, on that day, the Holy Spirit fell upon each of them and cloven tongues of fire came and rested upon each one of their heads and they began to speak with tongues and worship and praise God. And Peter preached a sermon that day and the harvest of souls began. 3,000 people were added to the church that day. What the Feast of Pentecost was rehearsing was now fulfilled again on the very day that it had been prophesied that God had an appointment with humanity. It's interesting, if you read down Leviticus and you get down into uh, you know, verses 20 through 22 of, of the chapter, he's still talking about the Feast of Pentecost. But he reminds the people there that when they harvested their fields, they were not to harvest the corners, but they were to leave that for the poor people. It was their welfare system in Israel. That they weren't to harvest at all, but allow the poor of the land to come in and gather from the corners, glean from the corners of the field. I find that fitting in a picture of Pentecost. Because that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost, is that the Holy Spirit came upon us, the poor people. We're not priests, we're not prophets, we're not special, we're just ordinary, everyday people that believe in God. And yet God says, you can have a part in my harvest too now. And thus the Feast of Pentecost, speaking of the harvest of the world, when God would pour out his Spirit upon the world. Thus we have the first four appointments fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. Passover, unleavened bread, First fruits, the resurrection, and Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. Now, after the Feast of Pentecost, which would be 50 days after first fruits, there would be a long pause in the feasts. It would be several months before there would be another feast. There was a large gap of time that existed between Pentecost and the fall feasts. And it would lead up to then the fall feasts, which speak of the second coming. Now, isn't that interesting? Because isn't there a long pause or a long gap of time that existed between the first coming and the second coming of Christ? It's almost as if God knew that when he ordained these feasts and he put it forward that way in the scriptures. So what are the fall feasts? Well, the first one, verse 24, is the Feast of Trumpets or Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah, the feast that 
begins at sundown tonight. Really, as we speak, this feast is beginning um, in really the courts of heaven because these are the feasts of the Lord that he keeps. It's a very mysterious feast and there's very mysterious customs that go along with it. Look at verse 24. It says, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, that is the Hebrew month of Tishri, of which we just began, the first of Tishri, In the first day of the month shall you have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no service work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. This feast would be marked by the new moon. That's the way that they measured months in Israel and in their dating system. So the new moon would mark that feast. It was the only feast of the seven feasts that was marked by the new moon. All of the others were in a full moon or a fuller moon. And it's important to understand that they didn't measure by calendar time, but by lunar time. And so it would be when the full moon was regardless of when it was. And they would celebrate it with 100 blasts of the shofar, you know, the ram's horn that they would blow in Israel. And I'm tempted to to imitate the sound right now, but you'd all run out of here uh, scared, you know, if I did. But they would have 33 sets of three blasts, and then it would be followed by, that would make 99, and that would be followed by the hundreds or the long blasts that would really close out the feast or finish the feast or bring the the feast to its fullness. Now, what this feast represents or speaks forward to for us is the first of three aspects concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that is the rapture of the church and the coming judgment upon the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, the apostle Paul was talking to the New Testament church about resurrection about eternal life, about our body in the heavens. And he came to the point in his discourse in the chapter where he addresses those people that are alive when Jesus comes back in the end times. And he says, this is what they can expect. Verse 51. He says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed or transformed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, At the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, that is, we'll get new bodies, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. It's an event that the Bible calls the rapture. Paul talks about it again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you would uh, look at that scripture, I think it's on um, your sheet, but in verse 13. Paul says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning them which are dead, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which also are dead in Christ will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. So it's Paul speaking by the Spirit, by revelation, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will not prevent or go before them which are already dead. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, snatched away together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The rapture of the church, the Bible teaches, is the time when Jesus comes for the church to catch us up into heaven just prior to the judgment that's poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world during a time the Bible calls the seven-year tribulation or judgment of God or the day of the Lord. Perhaps you've heard that phrase. The day when God comes to a Christ-rejecting world and judges it for its sin of rejecting him. Now, you and I, our judgment for our sin was already paid for by Christ. As soon as a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, he transfers every one of their sins onto him. And he transfers his righteousness or his righteous standing to the believing and repentant sinner. And there's a transaction that happens in heaven and the Bible says you are born again. The spirit of God comes and lives inside your heart and your sins are forgiven. And thus God is not going to judge sin twice. He already put away your sin on the cross. 
So therefore, just as any country will call its emissaries and ambassadors home prior to dropping a bomb upon it or declaring war, so also our Father will call his kids, the bride of Christ, the church, out home, catch us up before he declares war upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world that denied his son and denies him. That's what the Bible calls the rapture. And the Feast of Trumpets was a rehearsal speaking forward to that first aspect of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to that in a, in a few minutes because that's where we're at, Feast of Trumpets. The, the sixth feast was the Day of Atonement it's in verse 27. He says, also on the 10th day of the seventh month, so 10 days after Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah, there shall be a day of atonement and it shall be a holy convocation unto you or rehearsal. And you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Now, the Day of Atonement is described more fully in Leviticus chapter 16. And you can just write that down and you can read the details concerning it later. But the Day of Atonement was the one day a year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a lamb or a ram or a bulls and of goats. And he would make confession and atonement for the sins of the entire nation. And when the high priest would come out of the Holy of Holies, that most holy place in the tabernacle and later in the temple, he would pronounce forgiveness upon the whole nation and the people would rejoice because their sins were completely absolved for another year. And he had to do that every year because the Bible says it was impossible that the blood of animals could put away sin forever. It could cover it for a time, but it couldn't put it away eternally like Jesus' blood can. And so the Day of Atonement was the time when things would get set right. Do you understand? Once a year, things would get set right. Wouldn't that be nice if once a year you could just go to a feast and everything in your life would just get set right? You'd hit the reset button on everything and everything would just be perfect again. Man, I really screwed things up last year. But it's the Day of Atonement and so I get a fresh start right now. I can just go into this new year and everything's going to be brand new. I can start over. That's what that year, that's what that was about. And so it was a time of setting things right. And thus, it looks forward to, prophetically, the second coming of Jesus Christ. The literal second coming. See, the rapture is when he comes for the church in the clouds. But the second coming happens seven years later when he comes back to the earth with the church, sets his feet down upon the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives splits in two, he puts an end to the battle of Armageddon and he sets things right. That's what's going to happen at the second coming. This world that is twisted and backwards and sinful and Christ-rejecting and dark, he's going to set it right when he comes back the second time. And thus the Day of Atonement is an appointment that God has with the world when Christ will return and he will set things right once again. And then number seven, the final feast was the Feast of Tabernacles in verse 33 of chapter 23 of Leviticus. It says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. So five days after the Day of Atonement, so 15 days after Rosh Hashanah, now comes the Feast of Tabernacles. And in that day, they would set up tents in their homes and they'd remember that God dwelt with them in tents while they were in the wilderness. Remember for 40 years they wandered and they dwelt in tents. And God dwelt among them. He led them with a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night. And he was with them the whole time. They would set up tents to remind them of that time. But it was also looking forward to a time when God will dwell among his people personally. It's called the millennium in the Bible. See, after the second coming of Christ, the Bible says that there will be a thousand years where Christ rules and reigns on the earth and there will be peace and prosperity. Satan will be bound and there'll be no more temptation because the agent of temptation will be bound. He won't have access to earth. And, and the Bible says that longevity of life will be restored at that time. A man will be 100 years old and have the skin of a baby, the Bible says. The Bible says that the lion will eat straw like the ox and it paints the picture of the world that we all long for. God's going to dwell among us during that time. It's what's coming. It's called the millennium. And that's what the Feast of Tabernacles was looking forward to when Christ will tabernacle or dwell among us during uh, the time during the millennium. 
So all seven of these appointments now were yearly rehearsals, which were and still are commemorated by God's people. And all together, they point to us to the events concerning the first and the second comings of Christ. Now, most Bible scholars believe that if the spring feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Pentecost, were all fulfilled on their first day, or feast day, the exact day that they were set and rehearsed each year and then fulfilled on that same day, that why wouldn't God then follow suit and fulfill the last three appointments that he has with humanity concerning the second coming on those feast days as well? And what purpose is there for keeping those feast days if those aren't appointments that God has with the world? And so many Bible scholars believe that those feasts or appointments will be kept on the very feast day as well as far as the others. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, that makes sense, except there's one problem with that paradigm, with that proposition, the rapture. See, the rapture, if the rapture is pictured by the Feast of Trumpets, then can that happen on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah or the Feast of Trumpets, the day that it commemorates or rehearses? Because didn't Jesus say that no one would know the day or the hour? That you wouldn't know the time when it would be, that it would be like a thief in the night. It would be unexpected and you wouldn't be able to predict when the rapture would take place. Now, it's true Most Bible scholars believe that the rapture could happen imminently. That means any time. It could happen on January 3rd or February 17th, or it could happen on June 5th or January 1. Any time the rapture could happen because he says, always be ready and watch him because like a thief in the night, you don't know what hour. But will it, could it possibly happen on Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah. The Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah, is a very interesting and unique feast among the feasts. A couple of things I want to point out to you concerning that feast. First of all, it's the only feast of the seven that's celebrated over a two-day span. All the others are kept for one day, but the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, is kept and celebrated for two days. There's a reason for that. Because in verse 24, it says that they're to keep it on the first day of the month, which would be measured by the new moon. Now, when you measure time by the sun, and that's what we do in this country, we measure time with the sun, and that's a very constant way to measure time. It takes 24 hours for the earth to spin around one time, and so a day is 24 hours, and that's set, and it is what it is. It takes 365 and a quarter days for the earth to make one revolution around the sun, and so it's constant, and so we set our calendars by that thing. However, the Jews didn't do that. Their months and their years were governed by the moon, and that's a much less constant way to do things. See, the moon is, is always varying just a little bit. There's too many measurements when it comes to the moon. When, when it's just the earth and the sun, you only have one moving object. The sun is fixed, and the earth just goes around the sun, and so it's constant. But when you're measuring time with the earth and the moon and the sun, now you've got two moving objects. Because you have the moon orbiting the earth and you have the earth orbiting the sun. And thus you have this crazy gyrospheric activity happening with the I can't do this. You're, you know, it's kind of like chewing gum and or patting your head. You know, I can't, but, but you have this, this crazy thing happening. And thus, it's never quite predictable exactly when the new moon's going to be. See, the length of a month isn't a constant thing. Sometimes when the, earth, the moon is in perigee or apogee, you know, the different things or the the sun is at a, or the earth is at a different point in its revolution, a month could be 29.1 days. Sometimes a month would be 29.9 days. If you measured a month by the exact position of the moon making one revolution, it was only 27 days. But if you did it by the appearance of the moon, whether it was a new moon or a crescent moon, then it would take 29 days. And so the moon became a very inconsistent way of measuring time, and it was almost impossible to predict before computers more than a couple of years out when certain things would take place. And so because when they couldn't nail down exactly when the new moon would occur, would it be this day or this day, they decided we'll celebrate the feast over two days rather than one day, and that way we'll be able to uh, just cover it regardless. We know it's going to fall in one of these two days, the new moon, and thus that's when it will be. It will be those two days that we will do that. Now, 
For that reason, Rosh Hashanah is the only feast that's celebrated for two days because no one knows the exact day that that feast will be kept. So when is the trumpet blown? The trumpet is blown when the crescent moon appears, the new crescent. See, the waxing, or I'm sorry, waning crescent of the former month disappears and the moon goes dark. And then six, eight hours later, the brand new crescent, the waxing crescent appears. That's what officially marks the beginning of the new month. And so what they would do from time to time when their living conditions afforded it is that they would have two witnesses outside the city watching for the crescent to appear. And once the crescent appeared, notification would be sent back to the high priest that, yes, the new month has begun, and he would then blow the trumpet. And that would officially mark the beginning of the feast. I have this... um, was written by Zola Levitt, a Jewish scholar who lived and now is with the Lord. It says that the trumpet was a signal for the field workers to come into the temple. The high priest actually stood on the southwestern parapet of the temple and blew the trumpet so that it could be heard in the surrounding fields. At that instant, the faithful would stop harvesting even if there were more crops to bring in and he would leave immediately for the worship services. And so the feast would begin when the crescent was um, observed, the trumpet was then blown, and the people would be gathered in for the services of it. And thus, no one knew the hour of the feast. And the feast actually was known as, one of its idioms, the feast that no one knows the day or the hour. Because they didn't know what day or what hour the trumpet would blow during that feast. That's the way that they uh, would absolutely do it. It's an interesting thing concerning the feast. Thus, it could happen over the span of two days at any given hour. The feast was also called, um, or or, or the the feast was also known for the awakening blast because that's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for that first blast that would uh, kick off the the celebration of the feast. I told you earlier that there were 100 blasts of the trumpet that would happen on that day, 33 sets of three each. First, there would be what's called the tekiah or the tekiah. And it was just the the alarm, the sound of alarm to get the people's attention for them to come. And then there would be the shevarim, which was nine short blasts followed by, you know, like a high-pitched blast, but it counted as one blast. And then there would be the teruah, which would be the third. And they would do that 33 times, and it would come to 99 in number. But then the final trumpet, which would close out the service, would be what was called the takiyah gadolah. And that was done with the shofar, And it was done by someone with big lungs and they would just blow the shofar as long as they possibly could hold that note. It was the tekiah gadolah and it was known as the last trump or the last trumpet of the feast. And they would keep uh, that thing, you know, in that in that way. Um, The feast of trumpets was also to be a day of remembrance. In verse 24, it says that up in in the text there in Leviticus, it says that it will be a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. It would be a day that they would remember again that God is king and the shofar was intended to jolt them from their sleep. So it's a very interesting feast because of the customs and the idioms, the Hebrew idioms that it carries with it and the connotations in the context of our blessed hope, what we're waiting for in the rapture of the church. Prophecy always makes more sense in the rearview mirror than in the windshield, doesn't it? I mean, we look back at the things that God has done and we say, oh God, that makes perfect sense. You said that you were going to do this and then you did it and you did it in the exact way. Wow, amazing. And we always look back and then we look forward and we try to predict and say, God, this is what you say is going to come and let's see if we can figure out exactly how it's going to work out. And we take our best shot and we look at things and we watch and we connect the dots and we line it up And we get some things right and we miss out on others, but it always makes more sense when it's past than when it's coming. There are two schools of thought on the rapture. And these are in mainline Christian, you know, Bible-believing camps. One is imminence. Anytime, any place, or of course it's any place, it's every place. Anytime, any hour, any day, Jesus could come, the trumpet could sound, and we could be raptured. The other camp is that the rapture will take place on the Feast of Trumpets. That it's an appointment that God has set with the world. It's been rehearsed since the beginning, and he will then keep that appointment. Now, I can go with either one of those. I can go with eminence because I know what what Jesus said. He said, you don't know the day or the hour. 
He said, you won't know that, that, that time. He says it four times in the Bible. And so I can go with that. But I also look at the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, and I can see that it's the feast that no one knew the day or the hour. And so I can picture myself standing before the Lord after the rapture, and I intend to get raptured because I believe in Jesus Christ. And I could, I could have this conversation with God either way. We could get raptured on any random day. Just pick a day. Just say May 23rd or something, we get raptured. And I stand before God and I say, God, wow, that's awesome. I'm so glad to be here. But I really thought we were going to get raptured on the Feast of Trumpets. And he's going to say, you fool. Didn't you read that I said four times no one knows the day or the hour? And I'm going to go, yeah, of course, Lord. I just thought, you know, you're so systematic the way you do things. And Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, you know, Pentecost is so calculated. And I just thought that that's when it would happen. He said, ah, idiot. He, he can say that. He's God, you know. And I'm an idiot, so it would be true. I could have the other conversation. We could get raptured on the Feast of Trumpets. And I could say, God, you said no one would know the day or the hour. And he would say, you didn't. You didn't, did you? You didn't know. <laughs> you, you didn't know it would be that, and then you didn't know which day it would be, and you certainly didn't know the hour. You were caught off guard, weren't you? Well, yeah, little, Lord, even though I was expecting it. I don't know if I was really expecting it. See, I could have that conversation with God either way, and we could just talk Scripture back and forth and it could go either way. What's my point? My point is that it could happen. Now, he would also say to me, if the rapture happened on Yom Teruah, on the Feast of Trumpets, he would say to me, he would say, Nick, didn't you read in the, in the scripture where it says you would know the season? I'd say, well, yes, Lord, I did read that. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it's on your sheet, the Apostle Paul, writing in the context of this rapture, he says, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. See, there's two things that are perfectly spelled out for us in Scripture. First of all, the times. The signs of the times. What's going on in the world geopolitically? The spiritual condition of things. The cultural condition of man. The biblical things that he said that we should watch for that would be an indication of his soon return. Those are the times we should be well aware of those things as Christians because we know what the Bible says and we live in the world and thus we can compare the two things and we could say, wow, we're living in very prophetically significant days. That's the times. The seasons speaks directly to the feasts. Look back at Leviticus chapter 23 verse 4. Look at what God says. He says, these are the feasts or the appointments of the Lord, even holy rehearsals, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. Do you realize that this was the way that they measured seasons in the Jewish culture, mindset? It was by the feasts. And so the times and the seasons, he says, you have no need that I should write unto you. Shouldn't we know the season that we're going to live in? Interesting. Thus, if the rapture happens on any random day, I have no problem with that. I'm all for it. Lord, come. Whatever day you want to come. Or if the rapture happens, and I'm inclined to believe that it will happen on or around the Feast of Trumpets in whatever year and on whichever day and at whatever hour God chooses, that would make sense to me. And the reason is this, is because God is very calculated. He's very clear in the way that he does things. I mean, you study that from Genesis to Revelation and you see it. But there's another reason. See, because I'm not dogmatic on that. And I don't, I'm not teaching that you should be like, oh, the Lord is going to come back on the Feast of Trumpets and he can't come any other day. No, no, no. I'm not teaching that. Let me say it again. I am not teaching you that he has to come on the Feast of Trumpets and that he couldn't come any other day. He can come any day that he wants to. But I'm inclined to believe that he will come on this day because of what he has put in the word for us and because of the way that he is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of the nature of the feast itself. But there's another reason, and this I do want you to hear, and why, why, why I, I share this with you tonight, why we break from our normal Old Testament study and we go through this on this day for this reason. Because it helps me. It helps me practically to think that probably the rapture is going to take place at this time of year. See, the Bible tells me and it tells you that we are to eagerly await the Lord from heaven. That we're supposed to be excited about his appearing. That that's what we were made for. This is not our home. We're headed for heaven. And that this earth is, we're just passing through. We're supposed to have a light touch. We're supposed to see ourselves as pilgrims and strangers here. We're not supposed to be defiled by it or rooted to it. We're to have a light touch. 
And so I want to have an eager expectation, Lord, you could come, you could come and I want to go home to be with you. The Bible calls the rapture our blessed hope that, Lord, this is my deepest hope is that you're going to come and that you're going to pull us out of here and that we're ever going to be with you, our Savior. That we're going to be in the place that we were created to be in and we're going to experience what we were created to experience and we're going to do what we were ultimately made for. Lord, I long for that with all my heart. It's the blessed hope deep within my soul. And I want to hold that. I don't want to give that up for anything. But at the same time, I also want to be productive. And I don't know if you have this problem, but I do. And that is I have a very difficult time being extremely hopeful and desirous of the coming of the Lord with all my heart and occupying and doing what's ever in my hand diligently with all my strength. And so here's what this does for me, is that it gives to me a time of the year that I can focus in and say, Lord, you're coming. You're coming again. You're going to come down and you're going to grab it. Now, even if he doesn't come on Rosh Hashanah of whatever year, at whatever day, whatever hour, even if he doesn't do that, for me, to have that hope during this time of year and say, Lord, this is, this is going to happen. And my whole life is going to stop. Everything is going to be interrupted. It gives me a chance to express that longing that I have in my heart and to live it out. And then here's what happens, and this happens to me every year. September comes, October comes, the feasts pass, we get towards Thanksgiving, and I say, okay, Lord, I'm still ready for you to come. I'm still living like I want you to come. But what do you want me to do this year now? Lord, what do you want me to do? You've got me here on this earth. Your plan isn't over yet. There's work for us to do. There's a harvest. But it gives me a chance now. Do you understand? I can, I can say, Lord, come. I'm so ready. Lord, I want you to come. So what's the takeaway in all of this? And I had all this crazy cool stuff about where we're at, you know, World War III, you know, Syria bombing, Russia um, threatening, the deception. I had this great article that I don't have time to get into about the mark of the beast and implantable technology. And there's another one in here about Henry Kissinger's book at 91 that he wrote called World Order, where he says the problem in the world today is that we need to limit morality and righteousness. I mean, there's so much going on right now that points to where we are in God's grand prophetic scheme. But what's the takeaway as we are in this night tonight, Rosh Hashanah, and we think, and I want you to think about this for a minute, that right now the trumpet could sound, that God could shake this world to the very core with the shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God, and he could immediately catch us away into his presence where we will ever be with the Lord, immediately glorified. I want you to think about the fact that that could happen to you right now. What does that do to your life? What does that do to your heart? What does it do to your priorities? What does it do to the way that you see people, the way that you see the world, and the way that you see the lost? It's important to me to have that, to realize that, Lord, this is real. As science fiction as it sounds, Lord, you said this is what's going to happen. And, Lord, I'm awaiting for it to happen. If you're a Christian here tonight, this is a time of year when you should be excited, that you should be looking up, that your antennas, your eyes, your focus should be on the Lord because this world is not our home. Yes, we have a mission. Yes, we're called to occupy. Yet we are called to eagerly await the Lord from heaven. I do three things this time of year. Number one is I reflect. I ask myself, am I ready? Am I ready right now to go be with the Lord? Number two, I remember. I remember that he's coming. I make it a point to say, Lord, you're coming. I know that you're coming. I'm not going to lose sight of that and get so consumed in this world. And number three, I renew. And that is this, is that if he doesn't come this year or tonight or even right now, and you can say it's any time, then Lord, what do you want me to do? There's work for me to do. You've got something for me on this planet. Lord, help me to know what it is and to be ready for it. If you knew right now that the rapture was going to happen tonight, you just knew it, God spoke it to you or something like that, you know, we were going to study Elijah tonight and he kind of gets raptured in the, in the study. He goes to heaven without dying and he knew it was going to happen that day. He's a guy who was raptured and he knew it was going to happen. If that was you, put yourself in that position for just one minute. 
would you change anything about your life right now, knowing that you were going to be face-to-face with Jesus in an hour or in a couple of minutes or in a moment? Would you change anything about your life? Would your day tomorrow look any different if you knew that the rapture was going to happen tomorrow? If not, then you're probably a healthy Christian. If you can honestly look in and say, hey, you know what? I, I, I know I've got what I've got to do tomorrow. I'm going to go to work and I've got these things I've got to do and that is the will of God for my life right now and that's what he wants for me and so that's what I'm going to do tomorrow because that's where I'm at. And there's no crazy sin that I'm like mixed up about that I don't want to talk to God about right now or see him face to face. If you're in that position, then you are in a good place. But if you would say tonight, you know, there's some things I need to address. There's some things I've allowed into my heart, into my behavior. There's some priorities and attitudes that I've gotten too rooted in the things of this world. Then listen, you should do that anyway. You should make those changes even if this isn't the year or this isn't the week or the month or even the five years in which Jesus comes back. You should make those changes because this world is not our home. Finally, for the person that might be here tonight that doesn't know Jesus Christ personally, you know, you maybe have gone to church or maybe you were brought here because someone said, hey, we're going to talk about the days that we're living in and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. For you, this means something so much more. I've asked you to turn to Joel where we close our study tonight. The book of Joel, chapter 3. Joel is unique among the prophets, among all the prophets, whether it be Isaiah and Daniel, the big ones, or whether it be Micah and Malachi, the small ones, what the Bible calls the minor prophets. Joel is unique among them all. And here's why. No one knows when he lived or who he was talking to, what his contemporaries were, or what year this book was written. No no one knows any of those things, and you can't read Joel and figure any of them out. The book of Joel could have been written yesterday, And you wouldn't know it because it speaks towards a time that is yet to come. It speaks concerning the day of the Lord or the judgment of God that's coming upon the world during the tribulation. And in chapter 3, listen to what he says. He says, For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall begin, or I'm sorry, bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. So he begins by saying that in the days when I regather the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, that's speaking of the regathering of Israel. That's something that has taken place in our lifetime. 1948, they became a nation again. And they've been being established and growing in that land since that time, just since 1948. So this prophecy speaks to the days that we are living in. God says, in that time, I'm going to call all nations and gather them to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will plead with them there for my people and my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have parted my land. Do you understand that right now, even as we speak, the United Nations is meeting together in New York City right now discussing the very issue of the Palestinian-Israeli peace process? And part of that peace process is the dividing of the land of Israel, creating borders and lines for two states where God has ordained that there only be one state. And the leaders of the world have taken it to themselves to cut and divide God's land that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then put pressure on the Israeli or Jewish people to concede areas and borders of their land for those other states so that they can then just have peace in their land. Land for peace. Those are the terms. In fact, I have another article that I really don't have time to read. That's not it. I won't read it because I can't find it, but but talk to me afterwards because it's a good one. It's about the, Fran- the, the, Fr- the French proposal that isn't listed what it is, but it says that this is the, 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 the proposal that must happen if peace is going to happen, and it's to be proposed at UN while they're there this time. A very interesting set of circumstances. But notice what Joel says about it. He says, the the, the leaders of the world gather together and they scatter my people among the nations and they divide my land. And they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Yea, and what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Zidon? That's Hezbollah and Lebanon. And all the coasts of Palestine, that's Gaza in the south. 
Will you render me a recompense? And if you repay me swiftly and speedily, I will return your repayment upon your own head. Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my goodly pleasant things. The children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have you sold to the Greeks that you might remove them far from their border. Behold, I will raise them out of the place where you have sold them and I will return your recompense upon your own head. In other words, your negotiations aren't going to work. And I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the children of Judah and they shall sell them to the Sabians to a people far off for the Lord has spoken it. Now watch this. He says, proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war and wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of the earth or of war draw near and let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye Gentiles, and gather yourselves together round about. And there cause your mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the Gentiles be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the Gentiles round about. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Now that is a direct reference to the coming tribulation. That when the iniquity and sin of the world is to a point where God will no longer tolerate it, that is when he is going to begin to move. We find ourselves on the cusp of those days right now as we speak. Notice what he says next, and then we're going to close. Just three more verses. Multitudes. Multitudes. In the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened. And the stars will withdraw their shining. The Lord also will roar out of Zion. And utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth will shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people. And the strength of the children of Israel. He says that there will be multitudes in that day. In the valley of decision. That is that there's going to be those that are still yet to choose Christ. That they're still weighing it out and saying, well, do I really want to give my life to God? Or can I really bet my eternity upon what the Bible says about who he is and about what's coming both on earth and for heaven? And the Bible says that that day that it's going to come And just like the high priest would stand upon the parapet and he would blow the trumpet and even if there was harvesting left to be done out in the fields, the people would leave their instruments there and they would come into the temple for services. It's a picture of what will take place at the rapture. The trumpet will sound and those that are still in the valley of decision that have yet to make up their mind that will they give their lives to Christ, those people are going to be left behind. They're going to miss out on what God has for them because they were deciding Because they were choosing and they didn't know if they wanted to do it. And the Bible teaches us that God has waited as long as God has waited because of those very people. It says that God is not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's the desire of God's heart. And if that's you here tonight, your time is running short. And what we commemorate tonight as we consider the Feast of Trumpets is that on that day when that trumpet sounds, it's too late. See, what Jesus offers you is forgiveness and salvation and a kingdom and eternal life and hope and truth. But what's coming on this world after the rapture happens and the Christians are gone? Deception, destruction, death, hell, and a lie that's so dark that Jesus said even those who know the truth would believe it because of the power of those that will be convincing them of it. You don't want to be in that atmosphere. And he waits, the Bible says, with outstretched arm, waiting, pleading with you, will you accept my son and give your life to me that you might be saved? Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for this word. We thank you, Lord, for what it stands for and what it means to us. And as we tonight, again, rehearse, commemorate, and look forward to your appointment with earth that we have with you, oh, Lord, our hearts cry, come. Come, Lord Jesus. We eagerly await you from heaven, Lord. We long for that time when we'll sit in your kingdom at your feast, at your table. When we'll see your scars and we'll see your face and we'll hear your voice. And then, Lord, we'll see clearly what right now we can only see through a glass darkly. 
will understand what it costs for you to be crucified on a cross, your flesh torn and mutilated, your body broken. And Lord, to know then what we can't know now. We wait for it, Lord. We wait for you. And Father, we pray for any here tonight, Lord, that don't yet know you, that, Lord, you'd let that knock upon their heart be heard, that they would feel, Lord, you reaching out to them, that they would sense you drawing them with cords of love, that they would hear the heart of a Savior who says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for you will find rest for your souls. So for some, Lord, let tonight be that night that they put their faith in you. Lord, for the rest of us, may there be a rejoicing in our heart and soul as we eagerly await the Lord from heaven, our blessed hope, in Jesus' name. Amen.